Great. So I'm, I'm really excited for the uh, series that um, you all have been going through. And uh, I'm particularly happy that I have Act 17 and most of 18. Uh, Act 17 is actually one of my favorite uh, sections in the book of Acts. So it really resonates with me just because of the things that you learn about with the Apostle Paul's approach to the gospel, um, as well as just a lot of really deep truths that get shared in this particular chapter. So very happy to be uh, bringing the message this morning on it. So kind of where I want to start is with the idea of work ethic. Um, I found this one definition of work ethic that really resonated with me and kind of explained what it is. And this definition says work ethic is a set of values centered on the importance of doing work. And generally, it's reflected in a desire or determination to work hard. When I think about work ethic and when I think about um, maybe famous people that really represent that for for myself, one person that always comes to my mind personally is uh, Michael Jordan, the legendary basketball player. And if you ever have a chance just to read on his career and what he's accomplished, um, he's one of the greatest of all time to ever ever do it, really. Uh, Some of his accomplishments include winning six titles, five MVPs. He's a Hall of Famer, and he has the highest scoring average of all time, around like 30.12 points per game. And he started off as a relatively average basketball player. But if there's one thing that made him rise above all the rest, it was his insane work ethic that he had. Um, BJ Armstrong, who's a three times NBA champion, had this to say about Michael Jordan. He said, what Jordan didn't show you was his preparation. It was by far superior to any player I've ever seen. Another NBA uh, star, James Worthy, who was actually a teammate of Jordan's back when he was at University of North Carolina, had this to say about uh, Michael Jordan. He said, after about two and a half hours of hard practice, I'm walking off the floor, drenched in sweat and tired. And here comes Michael pushing me back on the floor, wanting to play a little one-on-one, wanting to see where his game was. And so you can read about this. I mean, NBA.com has articles about it, but Michael Jordan never stopped hustling. He was always moving. He was always pushing his game to the next level. And that's what allowed him to become the superstar that he is known today. Now, I connect that to the Apostle Paul, and one of the things that really stood out to me as, we, as I prepared for the message is the Apostle Paul's work ethic when it came to the gospel. Um, this man just never stopped. It's incredible, really. I mean, despite all the persecution, all the opposition that he faced, um, the tiredness, um, the, the hunger, nakedness. He talks about this in in 1 Corinthians, all the sufferings that he went through. The Apostle Paul never let up with sharing the gospel. And I found myself feeling inspired in preparing for the sermon and reading his story. It's it's like the the words came off the pages of scripture and really began to become alive for me. And that's my hope and prayer as I give you guys this sermon this morning. I really don't want this to be a case of me just handing you information that you go and take home and and you don't do anything about it. 
The, the, the purpose of me being here, the purpose of the sermon, the purpose of God's word is not to give you mere information. My hope and my prayer is that there could be some real heart change this morning. And very specifically, that we all would be encouraged to do exploits for the sake of Christ. Um, I want us to be on fire for sharing our faith. I want us to not be afraid to share our faith, to not be embarrassed about what we believe, because we shouldn't be embarrassed about this awesome news. We should be willing to share it with anybody and in any context, wherever God provides an opportunity. And so that's the goal that I have in sharing this message today. I want us to take this seriously. I want us to follow the example that the Apostle Paul set. Now, just to give a little bit of background here and, and kind of an overview um, Paul is continuing his missionary journey, his second missionary journey through the region of Macedonia. And we're going to see in chapter 17 that he's going to stop at Thessalonica and Berea. And then he's going to continue to the region of Achaia. And there he's going to be at Athens and Corinth. And then lastly, as he's closing off his journey, Paul's going to be returning to Antioch within Syria. And he's going to stop at Centria, Ephesus, and Caesarea. So that's just a brief overview of the cities and locations that he's visiting. And there are basically four themes that I want us to focus on as we go through the text. And those four themes are Paul's work ethic in the gospel, Paul's approaches in sharing the gospel, Paul's boldness in sharing the gospel, and then the last one, which is God's purposes behind the scenes. So Paul's work ethic his approach, his boldness, and God's purposes. So before we get into uh, the, the main text, let's just have a short word of prayer. Father God, I, I thank you um, just for the opportunity to uh, be back here and, and see um, just dear friends in the faith. Um, I thank you for the opportunity to bring your word. And I just pray and ask, Lord, that you would speak through me. I pray that it wouldn't be my words. I pray that you would help me to be clear, um, to be effective through your Holy Spirit. And once again, I pray that you would light a fire inside of us in sharing the gospel. Um, I pray that we would not be apathetic, but that we would be incredibly spiritually sensitive and that this would inspire people to go home, to figure out who are the people in their lives that they could share the word with. How do they do that? I pray that we would be like Paul in that respect, Lord, that we would be always thinking about how we can share the hope that we have. And so just bless this time that we spend in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there, there's a lot here in these two chapters. So I'm not going to read verse by verse everything, but we're going to go through and kind of summarize as we're working our way through the text. Um, and so we come here in verse one, where, where Paul arrives at Thessalonica. And it says here that uh, his custom was to go to the local Sabbath and he would reason with the Jews for three. Um, he would go to the local synagogue and he would re reason with the Jews for three Sabbaths. And his main message that he would have while in a synagogue was explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead saying, this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. So just to give some historical context, uh, uh, Thessalonica was a strategically located city. 
it was the central hub of a lot of trade routes. And so as a result, it was a center of commerce. And, and Paul, in coming here to the synagogue, was basically having a consistent approach whenever he would preach to the Jews. It says here that he would reason with them. And that word reasoned with them basically carries a connotation of a back and forth dialogue. And actually, as a matter of fact, the word in the Greek for reason is where we get our word dialogue from. And so this was a situation where Paul just wasn't speaking at people, but there was this back and forth exchange. All right. Um, um, he was demonstrating, he was proving things. He was digging deep into the scripture to show them that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the message wasn't this whole idea of necessarily you need to turn from a false God into the true God. Very specifically, I want to highlight that Paul was speaking to them in a Jewish context. He was using source material that they would understand to make a case for the gospel. And it says here that some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace gathered a mob, set the whole city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And so we see that some people do believe, some of the Jews are persuaded, um, but many more non-Jewish people are persuaded of the message that Paul brings. And note here, it says that they're, they're called devout Greeks. So in other words, these were not non-Jewish people who worshipped other gods or who were pagan. Rather, these were non-Jewish converts to, to Judaism. And so they would actually go to the synagogue and they would worship Yahweh along with the Jews. And so Paul brings this message, right, that the Messiah who we've been waiting for, the Old Testament scriptures that we have studied and we have preached about, these all point to Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one that we have been waiting for. And so as a result, a lot of the prominent women believe this and, and they join Paul and Silas. And, and, and the reason, one of the reasons I think for a lot of non-Jewish people here believing and a lot of prominent women believing is the fact that Paul had an understanding with, with the newfound revelations that God had given him that in the gospel, hierarchy and categories didn't matter right? So in a society where if you were poor, or perhaps if you're a woman, you didn't have certain social capital, this new message of freedom would appeal to those people groups. And as a result, you see a, a lot of non-Jewish people coming in and, and they're believing, they're joining the covenant family of God. And, and a lot of women are also believing too. Now, we see that the majority of the Jews, it seems here, were not persuaded, and they became envious of Paul. Why? Well, it's very interesting that a lot of the same reasoning that the Jews use here to oppose Paul was very similar to the reasoning that they had used in Jerusalem to oppose Jesus. As a matter of fact, in John eleven forty eight, 48, when the Pharisees were trying to think about how do we stop Jesus Christ from sharing his message, they had this to say about him. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And so th there's two things that were happening here 
within Judaism at the time. The first was that there was this fear of losing their place of uniqueness and cultural identity. Remember, right here in John 11, it says the Romans will take away both our place and nation. They were worried about losing their sense of Jewish identity. But the second thing that was also happening here as well, too, which was really sad and really unfortunate, is this this degradation happened in which Judaism wasn't ultimately about worshiping God anymore. The, The Pharisees and the different sects within Judaism at this time had built up these man-made traditions and and this legalism. And so as a result, it wasn't about true worship of God the Father. And and we can know this, by the way, if we look in John chapter 6, Jesus actually talks about this. And he says that if, if you had the Father, if you truly were believing in the Father and loving the Father, you would have accepted me. You you would have been drawn to me because I come from the Father, right? And, And Jesus taught you know, if you don't have the son, you do not have the father. And so, so what had happened was that God was not truly being honored in, in a lot of these places of worship. Now, I don't think it was something that happened everywhere at the same intensity, but generally speaking, this, this legalistic strain of belief had crept out of Jerusalem and it spread to other communities. And so as a result, when the apostle Paul comes and brings this message, they're envious of him. He, he, he's taking away our converts. He's taking away our place. And so they oppose him. And, and as we see in the text here, they attack one of the believers, Jason, um, thinking that the apostle Paul and Silas were staying with him. Um, and, and they bring them to the city rulers. And they say here uh, that these people in verse seven are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city with the things that they had heard. And so it says when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they basically had to post bond to be released. Um, They let them go. And so Paul basically is run out of town. And, And once again, the reasoning that the Jews use to oppose him is this idea that he's he's preaching against Caesar, right? And we see the same kind of line of thinking in the Gospel of John when the Jews um, exclaimed, we have no king but Caesar, when, when Jesus was brought forth on trial. They said, no, we don't want this man to be our king. We have no king but Caesar. It's the same kind of thinking that they're having here. And so as a result, uh, Paul is uh, goes and he travels uh, to Berea, Paul and Silas. And when they arrive there, they go right back into the local synagogue and begin reasoning with the Jews. That impresses me so much because he just had to deal with a mob attacking him. And and what does he do as soon as he gets to the next town? He goes right back to it. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. I've never been attacked by a mob, but I would assume it's pretty terrifying. Um, to just have a group of people standing against you and, and not simply yelling your face and not simply saying we don't agree with what you believe in. I mean, that in and of itself can be scary and uncomfortable. Um, but having your life threatened by a mob, that's what Paul has gone through. And, and it's not going to be the last time either. But he continues right with sharing the gospel. And so 
uh, uh, the city of Berea, it was a small city. It was about 6,000 people compared to Thessalonica's 200,000 uh, strong population. And it was about 45 to 50 miles away from Thessalonica. And so we read that the Jews at Berea were more fair-minded, or some translations would say more noble than those at Thessalonica. In other words, they were open-minded to the word that Paul had to bring. And we see this in, in two reactions that they basically have. The first, it says here, basically looking in verse 11, is that they received the word with all readiness. So in other words, even before they believed, they were open to what Paul had to share. And I think for us as believers, this is actually a, a really useful thing for us to keep in mind when we're engaging with the culture and when we're sharing our faith with other people. It's kind of prayerfully looking at the situation, asking ourselves, what is the level of engagement that we have here? What's the level of interest that we have? And I don't think that's um, a wrong thing to do. I don't think that's a mechanical thing to do or something that the Holy Spirit doesn't lead through. I think we should be a, paying attention to the way our audience is receiving the message, right? In the hopes that maybe the Holy Spirit is asking us to change our approach. Maybe he's asking us to adjust something that we're saying just so that we could try and hopefully by God's grace, reach that person. And so we see here, right, that, that they receive the word with all readiness. And it says that they search the scriptures daily to find out if these things are so. Is it true? So in other words, they took the initiative, right, to go and explore the scriptures for themselves. And the result of that is that many of them believed, many of the Jews believed, and also not a few of the Greeks. So many also of the non-Jewish people believed, prominent women as well as men. And so we see the word of God is going forth despite opposition that the Apostle Paul had faced. Now, unfortunately, it says in verse 13 that when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. And so Paul again was run out of town. And in his missionary travels, this is the fifth time that he is being rushed out of town by an angry mob. But what does he do? He moves on forward. Um, some believers help uh, go with him and they travel to Athens. In the meantime, Silas and Timothy, they stay behind, most likely to encourage the new believers at Berea. And then later on, the Apostle Paul calls for them. And so this brings us to Athens. So we read here that while Paul was waiting uh, for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So to understand Athens, Athens was basically a center of high culture. Um, it was a very educated city, and it was also a place of, of fine art. Um, very flashy, very, uh, I guess in some ways you could maybe say progressive for that time of, uh, back then. Um, maybe some cities that would be kind of analogous to Athens in a way would be, I, I personally think of like New York City. I think about maybe the art scene there, like high fashion or even Paris. That's also another place known for being a city of high culture, high, high fashion and things of that nature. So that, that is Athens. And if we notice here, 
Paul is not taken in by the sights. He's not taken in by the flashiness. Instead, what is Paul thinking of? He's thinking of the people. He, he's thinking of what do they believe? What's happening here? And, and he said that it says here that the city was given to idols and Paul's spirit was provoked inside of him. And this is another point that I see here for us. Um, I had a conversation with a friend uh, years ago that kind of that, that changed my perspective on um, the way we Christians should view travel and vacationing. And basically what the conversation was about is she was sharing with me how she really thinks we as Christians, when we tend to go off on vacations, particularly in American culture, um, it's like we forget we're Christians, right? We just focus on luxury. We focus on taking a break. Um, and her point was being a representative of Jesus Christ, there's no vacation from that. You know, what if when we went on our travels, what if when we went on our vacations, we carried with ourselves a spiritual mindset? We took time to think about, okay, you know, I'm, I'm in this location. What do they believe here? Would I have any opportunities to share the gospel here? How can I pray for the city that I'm staying at, right? We must always maintain a spiritual sensitivity to the environment that we are in, whether we're at work, whether we're at play, whether we are at home, we must not forget that we represent Jesus Christ. And there are people in this world that don't know him. There are people in this world that if they were to die this very second, they would be in an eternity in hell separated from God forever. The stakes are high, right? And so Paul sees that the city is in a lot of spiritual darkness and his spirit is provoked, it says. And so what does he do? He basically doubles up on ministry work. We see here that um, the apostle Paul would reason in the synagogue and then he would go to the marketplace and he would continue to share the truth. And then some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in verse 18 encounter him and they basically want to know what is his message? And, and the reason why it catches their attention is because it says here, we've never heard this doctrine and, and you're preaching to us foreign gods. We've never, we've never heard about this God of which you speak. And so just to understand um, the Epicureans and the, and the Stoics, the Epicureans believed essentially that pleasure was the main goal of life. Um, so very specifically, it, there's this other line of thought that the, the acquiring of knowledge was the purpose of life. And the, and the Epicureans believed, no, knowledge is not the purpose, pleasure. Do what feels good, feel as good as you can, be a hedonist. Pleasure is what makes life worth it. And then the Stoics essentially were pantheistic. So they believed that everything was God in a sense. So me, you, these chairs, the building, the trees outside, the birds, everything was an extension of the divine. And as such, the line of reasoning that the Stoics had was that, well, if everything is God and everything that happens, whether good or bad, is from God and is God, we should accept everything with just this neutral, controlled response. So whether you're a newlywed and you're enjoying your new marriage, you shouldn't be super joyful, or whether you're encountering great suffering, you should not be at despair, everything should be handled right here. 
that that was the idea of the Stoics. You you did not express big joy and you did not express big disappointment. Everything was handled with this controlled type of response. And so these groups, and I'm sure other groups, bring Paul to this area called the Areopagus. And the Areopagus was basically a judicial-like body, kind of almost like a Supreme Court. They met at this location called the Hill of Mars, and Mars was one of the gods that was worshipped. And they would go there and have people present new ideas and, and new philosophies, and they would talk them through and they would debate them. And this was the thing to do. That is what they just love doing. It says in verse 21, the Athenians and foreigners spent their time in nothing else but to tell or hear something new. It was almost like a social media fad. That was just the main thing. Like, what, what is the new news? And once that thing was kind of old and boring, they would throw it away and go to the next thing. And so Paul gives his famous Mars Hill address. And this is, is one of the most profound um, pieces of, of information I feel that Paul gives in the book of Acts. And Paul does four things in his address speaking to the people. I believe these four things honestly paint for us a picture of how we could share the gospel with people in a different context. The first thing that Paul does is he makes a connection. The second thing that Paul does is he makes an observation. The third thing that Paul does is he makes a transition. And then the last thing that he does is he explains the truth. So Paul makes a connection. He makes an observation. He makes a transition. And then he explains the truth. And we're just going to break those down very quickly. So Paul makes a connection. Now, note, he's speaking to Gentiles here, not Jews. So he can't start with the Old Testament. He can't start with the scriptures. They have no knowledge of those things. So what does he do? Paul starts at a location that they would be able to understand. He acknowledges the religious passion here. He says here in 22, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And then Paul makes an observation about their worship. And in verse 23, he notes this altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And so right there, there are, are, are three underlying logical facts that are happening in acknowledging that. Paul's acknowledging that the Athenians acknowledge divine existence. He's also noting that the Athenians don't know who this unknown God is. And then third, but he's also seeing and pointing to the fact that they are willing to worship a God they don't know. And that leads to Paul making a transition. So he, he notes this connection and he says, I, I noticed this altar to the unknown God. Let me tell you about this God whom you don't know. That's, that's the transition right there, right? And then after making that transition, he explains the truth. And so in his explanation of truth, Paul's correcting errors. He's, he's sharing new revelations about God that they may not know. He's identifying common ground with the listeners. He's reasoning with them. And then he's ending with a conclusion and a call. And these are things that I believe provide a framework for us in sharing our faith. You know, sometimes I, I've seen in, in different ways, shapes, and forms, whether in person or online, um, that, and this is my personal opinion, I think sometimes as believers, we tend to be very rigid with how we share the gospel, right? And I'm not talking about watering down the gospel. I'm not talking about not sharing the truth. That's not what I'm talking about, right? But we almost kind of follow this checklist. 
and this cookie cutter approach with different people in different contexts. And I don't think that's the way to do it. I mean, even if you look in the gospels, even if you look at Jesus's own ministry, he approached different kinds of people in different ways. And we see the apostle Paul doing the same thing here. And I think that's a lesson for us to understand our audience, to understand the culture that we're dealing with, to understand the beliefs to a certain degree of the people that we are witnessing to and asking the Holy Spirit to show us, how do I make a connection with that? How do I use that to share the gospel? And so Paul, in his address, he explains here in 24 that God made everything. Um, He's the one who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, for he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And so Paul corrects this error that this idea that the divine can be contained by man, right? As if, as if the divine lives in man-made temples and, and is somehow constrained by, by these man-made objects. He's saying, no, God is the maker of everything. He's, he's created everything. And as a matter of fact, we don't worship because God needs worship. We, we worship because that's something we need, right? We need him. He doesn't need us. So he starts to correct their thinking about God. And then he shares here that not only does everything rely on God, but in verse 26, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Um, so he identifies that everyone has come from a common ancestor. And one thing that I think is like a really cool tidbit is the fact that the Bible, you know, kind of talked about this, you know, all of humanity descending from one blood, basically one common ancestor, right? And then science also confirms that, you know, it, I think that's a pretty cool thing that we have here, the Bible talking about something with biology that later on, Biology and science confirms, yeah, this is true. Um, and it says that that God has predetermined, right, the location and times of all the nations of history and why. And I remember when I had first learned about this years ago, just as I was reading through Acts and learning about my faith and learning about the Bible, I was blown away by this. And I'll explain to you why. Paul says that God has providentially ordered the world specifically for the intention that people should seek the Lord in the hope that they should grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For me, this blew my mind because there was a certain time where I was really working through a lot of apologetic questions about my faith. And one of the big questions I had is, what happens to people that are in remote locations that that don't have the gospel? you know, are, are they doomed? Is, is there no way that they can be reached? And I remember reading this text and a light bulb going off in my head and just being absolutely, I, I felt relieved and blown away it, it, in a way that we don't necessarily fully understand whether someone is here in America where there is seemingly a lot of light, you know, we, we are a, a nation that you know, has churches, the Bible Belt, all those things, whether you're here or in some remote country where there's no knowledge of the gospel, scripture says that God has placed every nation exactly where it needs to be so that people can know God. God is not limited in getting the truth out where it needs to be 
at the right times through his providential power. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you have heard about stories of, of people in remote locations where there is no gospel, there is no spiritual light, receiving visions of Jesus Christ. You can read about that. These, these are real situations, right? And, and I remember reading one story in particular um, of this one tribe. And unfortunately, I don't remember what the group of people um, is, but one of the prominent people in this one tribe actually had a vision of a missionary coming and bringing them a message. And then a few years later, a man comes and it was the man that this person had in the vision bringing to them the gospel and the whole village ends up saved. So what I'm trying to say is that God is not limited in reaching people. And there may be other things that he's doing that we can't even begin to fathom in making sure that all peoples, all tongues, all tribes would have an opportunity to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul moves on and, and he essentially says that we shouldn't think that the divine nature, right, is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by man's art or devising. That's in verse 29. And the logic he uses is because we are God's offspring. Now, this was actually a poem that the Apostle Paul was um, quoting from Epimenides the Cretan. And Paul quoted this line from the poem, not because everything that this person taught was from God, but there was a, a truth in there that he recognized. And he used that to establish a further connection with his audience. And once again, I don't believe that this was something that was a mistake that Paul did or something that was wrong. And I don't think he was trying to ever promote something that was false doctrine. I think it's okay for us as believers to say, hey, that belief that you have, there's a little bit of truth in there. But I, I want to expand upon that for you. And I want, I want to show you how that little piece of truth connects to the whole. And, and I want to explain to you what the truth is and where the errors are. I think it's okay for us to do that. We don't have to be afraid of doing that, right? And, and so he uses this logical argument in saying that we shouldn't think that God is, is like a statue because we are his offspring. Are, are we statues? Are we made out of man's art and devising and ingenuity? No, we are living, breathing um, um, spirits and, and souls. And if, if we're God's offspring, then that means we must be like God in some way. And if we're not statues, why do you think God is a statue? That's the line of logic that he's using here. And so Paul's reasoning with the truth. And we as believers, once again, I think with his approach, we should not be um, um, people who can't reason our faith out. Sometimes I've seen some approaches where the gospel is shared, right? And it's just like, Oh, well, Jesus Christ on the cross for your sin. Now, you, all you need to do is just believe. I think that falls flat sometimes. I'm not saying that God can't work through that. God isn't, you know, ultimately limited through our efforts. But we should reason with people, explain the implications of the gospel, right? How, how does this change your life? If you know that person's struggling with something or they're dealing with a certain situation in their life, how does the gospel answer that? Reason it out. Don't just drop it in their laps and say, okay, now it's time to believe. Work through it with someone. You see what I'm saying? And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. And then he ends with the call. He says that God is calling everyone here to repent. Um, 
And in verse 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And unfortunately, at this point, a lot of commentators believe that Paul was actually cut off um, in his sermon uh, because he mentioned the resurrection from the dead. And it says here that some mocked um, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, while some said, we will hear you again on the matter. And so Paul departed from among them. But the thing that I want to highlight here is Paul ends with a call and a conclusion. In other words, he's answering this unspoken question, which is, okay, you've given me all this information about Christianity. What's the point? What do I have to do with this? Right? He's answering that question. He's saying, God is calling everyone to repent, to turn from false worship, and to believe in the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. And the Christ is the one who will judge the world. And he ties that into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by saying that he has given assurance this by raising him from the dead. So you see here how Paul starts with where the Athenians are and he works his way up to the gospel. Do you see that? This is an outline that I believe we can use in our own sharing of the gospel to other people. Now, while not many seemingly here believed, we do have some that did um, believe, such as Dionysus, um, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. And then Paul travels to Corinth. And so we'll just briefly summarize um, what happens in Corinth, and then we'll, we'll close out. Um, but in Corinth, Corinth was uh, a, a city that was really the vice city of the day. Um, it had a huge reputation for loose living, um, a lot of like sexual morality going on. And it, it was it was a pretty tough city. And so Paul reaches here. He, he forms a friendship with Priscilla and Aquila. We can see in verse two. They were a Jewish couple, and they go on to have a, a lifelong friendship with the Apostle Paul, and, and he mentions them repeatedly in, in several other letters that he writes to the churches. Um, Silas and Timothy, they return to the Apostle Paul, and they bring news that the Thessalonians are, are continuing the faith, and a lot of commentators believe it's actually at this point that when Paul received the news, this is when he wrote um, First Thessalonians to the church that was over there. And so Paul continues to reason in the synagogue, but the Jews, um, uh, unfortunately, many of the Jews are persuaded, but also many of them oppose him. And it says that they blaspheme. And that word oppose, it actually says to set an army in array against. So in other words, they, they got into battle formations against the apostle Paul. And when, and when they blaspheme, that word to blaspheme basically carries the meaning of to speak harm against, right? Like if you can't attack someone physically, you at least try to attack them with their words and you slander them. And, and they're blaspheming, not, not necessarily against Paul, but ultimately against Jesus Christ. And so the apostle Paul, his reaction is, is, is to shake his garment at them. It says here in verse six, and he says, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And just to explain that reaction there, um, back in that culture and time, if you shook your garments at someone, you're basically saying, I have nothing to do with you anymore. Like I'm, I'm done. And, and the idea of shaking your garments was basically you're, you're even shaking off the dust from that person's home. You're saying, I'm not even carrying your dust 
on my body. That's how done I am. Um, you know, one, one modern, I guess you could say example of something that's similar is like, if someone does something like this, like I'm done, it kind of carries the same idea. You understand what I'm saying here? So that's essentially what Paul does. Um, he's saying, I I'm finished and I'm going to start prioritizing the Gentiles. Now I do want to note, he doesn't stop reasoning with the Jews in the synagogues. And, and we see that later in Ephesus, he does stop at a synagogue there, but Paul goes on to prioritize working and, and, and reaching out to the Gentiles. And so God provides another opportunity for Paul where he stays at justice's house and, and the ruler of the synagogue Crispus comes to believe on the Lord and all of his household. And so just like that, God flips the situation. He turns it around the very same synagogue that Paul left because they were being abusive and they were resisting the gospel. The leader of that same synagogue comes to believe in the Lord Jesus. And so the Lord encourages Paul. We see here in verse nine, do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in the city. And so the apostle Paul continues preaching in this region. And so then we come to this last section here of 18, where um, the Jews once again rise up with one accord against the Apostle Paul. And this, this takes place a year and six months later. And they bring him to Gallio, who is the proconsul of Achaia. And they say that this, and they, and they said this about Paul, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, it says here that Gallio said to a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names of your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. Something that's really cool here is the detail that um, the writer of Acts, which is believed to be Luke, by the way, um, includes the fact that Gallia was proconsul of, um, of Achaia. And the reason why that's such an interesting little tidbit is that there were different types of um, rulers over the region of Achaia at different periods of time. And the time that Paul was in um, this region in Corinth was a time that Achaia was organized where there would be a proconsul ruler. And so Luke literally gets his timing down exact with mentioning that little historical detail. And I just thought that's really encouraging because there's so many different historical facts that the book of Acts talks about. Like the book of Acts is our primary source for understanding the early church. And so uh, Gallio is like, I don't want to deal with this situation. You guys handle it. This is not a matter of the law. Um, I'm leaving that to you guys. And it says here that he drove them from the judgment seat. And that that word of driving them from the judgment seat literally means he like forced them out. He, he kicked them out. And I can imagine the scene. They were probably in an uproar, didn't want to leave. They, they demanded this had to be handled and he forced them out from the judgment seat. And so it says here, um, now some translations say that the Greeks took Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue and beat him. Other translations just simply said that they, um, most likely referring to the Jews, took Sothenes and, and beat him. And so a lot of biblical scholars favored a text um, for various reasons that we don't have the time to get into, um, that it was really the Jewish crowd that took Sothenes and beat him. 
And it, it can kind of make sense because it seems here that Sothenes had converted to Christianity. He's actually mentioned by name in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 1, as a brother in the faith. And so the idea here is that the Jews took him and they beat him um, in frustration, but also because he also had converted to believing in Christ. And so we come to the end of Paul's second uh, missionary journey where he's returning to Antioch. And it says here that he sailed for Syria in verse 18 and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria for he had taken a vow. And so most likely this was a Nazarite vow. Um, and this was something that was established when God had established the law um, where someone would basically make a Nazarite vow to consecrate themselves to God for a specific reason. Oftentimes that was done um, as a sign of thanks to the Lord. You know, um, one example would be, you know, for the birth of a child. If someone felt so thankful to God, they would consecrate, consecrate themselves as, as a Nazarite. And what they had to do is they let their hair grow long. They couldn't have any alcoholic beverages and they had to avoid being near a dead body. And so most scholars believe that this is the type of vow that Paul had made and probably as a sign of thanks to God for the missionary work that he had done. And then Paul comes to Ephesus and we note here that um, he entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And it seems as though the Jews here had a more favorable response to him, very similar to what happened at Berea, because it says that they asked him to stay longer, but he did not consent. But he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but when I return to you again, God willing, but, but I will return to you again, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And so Paul ends his second missionary journey, returning to Antioch, which was essentially his home church where he had first gone out. And so we see the work of Paul um, throughout his travels here. And, and in closing, there are basically five main things that I want us to, to keep in mind. Um, the first is the fruit, right, of Paul's missionary journey. He ended up establishing several new Christian communities that later on went on to grow and provide us with some amazing scripture in the letters that he wrote back to those communities. So there's a lot of fruit that came out of the work that the apostle Paul was doing, you know, and I, and I thank God that he did not stop. I thank God that he had an amazing work ethic for the gospel. Uh, the second is spiritual awareness and sensitivity for lost souls. And I touched upon this earlier. Do we walk around forgetting that we're supposed to be sharing or do we keep this in our minds 24 seven? Do we have a spiritual mindset or do we constantly forget, I'll, I'll even put it this way, do we forget that we're Christians? Do we forget that we represent Christ? Are we sharing? Do we try to be strategic about how we can share the gospel with people? Right, we, we need to maintain a spiritual awareness. And then this leads into the third, we need to be bold in sharing our faith. Um, we live in a time, obviously, where Christian ideals are increasingly unpopular and viewed as backwards, right? Um, and yet, things that we know are shameful to God, people are proud of, and, and, and they're bold in these things. So why shouldn't we be bold in the gospel? Why shouldn't we be strong in sharing our faith? Why should we be afraid when we have God on our side? 
And it, it's not a matter of us versus them. That's not what I'm trying to say. It, it's us versus Satan. It's us versus the principalities and the, and the spiritual rulers of darkness. That's, that's who we're up against. Why should we be afraid? We shouldn't be afraid. We have God. We should be out there sharing our faith. We should be bold. And then the fourth point here is we should be willing to adjust our approach in sharing the gospel. Understand your audience. Understand the context. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. How should I be approaching this person? We have the freedom to do that. And then the last thing is faith in God's providence. And you can see all throughout Paul's journeys, despite him being run out of towns, but despite him being persecuted, being opposed, God always worked out the situation for good. You know, when when he was um, resisted at Corinth, he left the synagogue. And what happened? The ruler of the synagogue came to faith, right? And then there was another light right there that could go and spread on the gospel. Um, the, the gospel of Christ is exponential. You know, as you share it with more people, those people will then go on to share with others. And then those people that they shared with will go on to share with others, right? So we need to trust in God's leading as we continue to share our faith. And so, like I said, in closing, my hope and prayer in this small amount of time is that you take this and study it for yourself. I want us to be practical in sharing our faith. I want us to be strategic and I want us to make this a priority in our lives, right? Other people's eternal destinies are at stake and the glory of God is at stake. And so my hope and prayer is that you've been encouraged to go forth and share the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you once again for this time um, in your word. I thank you for um, just the examples that you give us in the saints and how we are not left without an example. We're not left with um, instructions or or ways to share our, our faith with other people. And I pray, Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray that you would help us to be bold, help us not to be embarrassed. You know, if we're talking with someone, and we feel the Holy Spirit, you know, whispering in the back of our heads, you should share with them the word. Help us not to be afraid to do that. Help us to be bold. Help us um, on our travels, in, in our workplaces, in our everyday lives to always have a spiritual mindset. And I just pray that there would be um, great fruit from uh, this short time and looking at Acts. And so we thank you for your word in Jesus name. Amen.